you have to hire the right people for the task that you're at at that moment, not the right people in general. So someone who's right for Google is not right for a startup. We're having a very hard time hiring machine learning experts, right? The problem is that most of these amazing people go to these large companies and the skill sets they get there are great for large companies, but they wouldn't be able to start something from scratch. Welcome to the podcast where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. I got a great one for you guys today. My guest on the podcast is Noam Bardin. Bardin. Let me start that over a second. It's Noam, Noam Bardin. 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 Noam Bardin. All right, let's start that over. Rarely start over. <clears throat> Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Noam Bardeen. Noam is a founder of Post, a platform built for real people, real news, and civil conversations. And while you'll soon perhaps know him better from that, you'll probably know him already from his work as a CEO of Israeli-based navigation app Waze. Yes, Waze, you know, that app that tells you where the traffic cams and the cops are. Waze is a massive company that was acquired by Google in June of 2013, where Noam continued to build the company until he moved on in 2021. And prior to Waze, Noam served as the CEO of Intercast Networks and co-founded Delta 3, a leading international VOIP service provider. And he is known by many as a product guy and for good reason. But I'm excited to get under the hood and know how that product background is driving the huge vision for post news. So let's get into it. Noam. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I am I am thrilled. It is an honor. Um, I get approached a lot lately. You know, we were talking before about I've been doing the show for a long time, and I'm really proud of the level of guests that come from inbound PR pitches. And the moment that your team reached out to me, it was like f yeah. I was like, I know who this guy is, and I'm excited to talk about him. And I usually save this comment for later on in the show, but you know, this show is like my personal masterclass that I curate and I get to talk to folks like yourselves and share that with my audience. And, and I'm thrilled to have you here today, sir. Well, great. I'm looking forward to it. Although you set the bar pretty high. Now I'm kind of yeah, worried about what I say. I think you'll, I think you'll, I think you'll do all right here. So I, I think about your career uh, in three acts, the early days when you're the early wins and losses as a founder and CEO, the bulk of your career, of course, being with Waze and Waze within Google. And finally, where we are now post Google um, with, with, with post.news. We're going to dig into each one of those, but I think it's really critical for my audience to understand, you know, who you are, who you are and, and, and that foundation where you come from. I would love you could talk a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing, and I'd love to know what your parents did for a living. So I grew up in Israel, um, but although I grew up in Israel, my parents are American. They moved to Israel when I was six months old. Uh, my father was a computer programmer at the Hebrew University. My mother's a social worker, clinical social worker. And I grew up in a house. They were both very involved in the civil rights movement in America at the time. And been out to Mississippi, got shot at, you know, the whole story. So uh, I grew up a lot on those myths of, uh, on the one hand, the civil rights movement in America and, the, and kind of the myth and the reality of America. And in Israel, my parents were very involved in, uh, in the peace process, which obviously has not gone very far, but uh, everything around that. So I think I grew up in a house that was very politically active, uh, at the same time, valued education a lot. 
although I was not a very good student at school. I mean, looking back, I'm, I would have been diagnosed as dyslexic, but at the time it just meant that a lot of potential and he's lazy. That was the, the, the way you described the dyslexic in those days. Um, then I went to the army in Israel. I, I was in the special forces in Israel um, and kept doing reserve duty for about 20 years later. I think that's probably the, the first major component of, if you think about kind of what, what shaped me, was really this idea that a small team can achieve anything. Uh, and there's like nothing that a small team can't achieve if it's focused and driven and never give up. I want to I want to I want to take a left turn on that for a little bit. I'm I'm a huge fan of the of the of the Netflix show Fauda. I assume you've watched Fauda. <laughs> so Leo Raz, uh, the creator of Fauda and the main actor, he plays uh, Doron. The, Doron. He's my, he's my childhood friend. We've been we went kindergarten together. Like we're brothers from another mother. <laughs> my, my my I I I that's like my show. That is that is I got I got goosebumps thinking about this. I I love Fauda. Um I mean, just crazy question here. Do you think that model could have ever would have worked in the United States, or was it because of reason of the of Israeli the size and then and the nationality element to it, why it works there and why it's so tight? Do you think that would ever, you know, I mean, if it was implemented 150 years ago, where every American had to serve for two years? Well, that used to be the case. Let's not forget, right? True. I mean, you used to have a draft in America, and it, uh, Israel is at, at the end of its uh, sort of people's army. For many different reasons, it's going to move to a professional army. I mean, the, the model's breaking down for a lot of different reasons. It's complicated. But I think that that it brings people together in a way that you don't have today. I mean, today, when does a, a redneck kid from Alabama and a woke kid from New York, when do they ever meet physically? And, you know, you put them in a room together, they'll be best friends. Put a mm-hmm. computer screen between them, they'll hate each other. You know, <laughs> there's something about that. I'm laughing because it's true. Our bubbles have become so so dense, like we don't break out of them at all. And that's what's the, what I think one of the great thing about military service in general is you get to meet people from different backgrounds, different environments, and you discover that they're just like you, et cetera. And 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 let's let's talk. Not I mean, it's kind of a misconception. Just because Israel is small, there's different classes and people coming from different backgrounds, and not everybody's Jewish, right? There's right. I mean, there, there's terrible rifts in Israel in terms of, of, of like, you know, you think about the, the, in America now we're talking about the polarization. Israel is just as polarized, maybe several poles, but mm. definitely just similar. If you talk about the U.S. being on the verge of a civil war, Israel's on the verge of a civil war as well. It's a global, it's a global phenomenon, what we're seeing now with this polarization. I mean, it's got Brazil and, and then Europe and everywhere. I mean, we could, we could go real deep rabbit hole into that and, and how the internet and the speed of technology has accelerated polarization on, on so many levels. But I want to get back to the time in the army because the more I think about it, as you're talking, it's resonating in my head, Noam. It's like the, the concept of teamwork and understanding communication. Talk to us a little bit about how they teach you how to effectively communicate in the military and how that translates into entrepreneurship in corporate America. Well, it's hard. First of all, the unit I was in is not exactly traditional military. It's not a huge military. It's a, it's very much resembles a startup versus a corporation. If you think about the Marines or or, or the infantry as a corporation, you think about special forces as a startup. Right, the SEALs. Exactly. And what the SEALs or any special forces unit looks for in people is people who don't give up. Like they're not necessarily the biggest people, the strongest people. Uh, you know, you have all these myths about these monster people. No, it's people that never give up. If you never give up, right? And uh, you know, 
you're put into situations where it's very, very difficult not to give up. But the point is you will succeed at a certain point. And, and that is, that's what they look for in terms of people more than anything. And I think the same thing when you think about startups, every startup, every business goes through terrible times. Things are hard. Nothing works beautifully. You know, ways we like to talk about this big exit. We almost went bankrupt twice. I mean, every business is a mess and is hard. And the difference, I believe, between businesses that succeed and businesses that fail overall is the tenacity of the team and of the founders. It's so crazy. So I've had I've had multiple guests on the show who have been in special forces, Navy SEALs, and they say the same thing. They say at the at, during the um, the uh, the the screening process before you can even get into the SEALs, how rigorous it is physically. But they've seen more big, jack, physically fit guys fail versus the smaller guys who are mentally stronger make it through. I mean, the thesis is, and I was also involved in on the selection process later on. The thesis is that you can. It, it build up someone's physical strength and, you know, you can train people if they, and you can you know, make them into kind of what you want. But what you cannot train is that ability never to give up. You know, when it's three in the morning and you've been up for a week and you're now marching and you've been marching ready for 70 kilometers and you've got another <clears throat> 50 to go. How do you not give up at that moment that you cannot train that's embedded in a person's mentality? That's it's absolutely incredible and in how that translates to business and pushing forward and leading people there. So uh, one commonality that I noticed in each of your companies you founded, whether it be Delta 3, Intercast, Wazer, now Post, you've always worked and built companies that have a potential for world-changing scale. Is that is that a major factor? Does it have to have that kind of impact when you decide what is next? So, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, uh, kind of synthesize why you choose to do something. Right. There are a lot of different reasons. And obviously, you tell yourself a story, you tell other people a story, et cetera. Um, it was funny. Intercast was a company that failed miserably. And we ended up shutting down the company. That was one of my most traumatic experiences. Obviously, I learned the most. You learn the most from your failures. And you what, but, what, but what was traumatic about it? Because well, well, it was the first all, major fail? And did you feel major, like you let the team, let the team they, down? I let the team down. Uh, look, first of all, I made a mistake in joining the company. That was on me uh, um, that I... I did my due diligence for the position of wanting to go in, you know, and that's, that's always a problem. And there's a whole bunch of, of, of issues, but the point is shutting down a company is one of the worst things you can do. It's terrible. It's, it's nerve wracking. You've let down your investors. You've let down your employees. You've let down your customers. I mean, the whole thing is, is really terrible, but that's the only time you'll actually learn because when you succeed, it's very easy to say, well, I'm a genius. I'm great. I'm wonderful. <laughs> and not look at what went wrong along the way. Fascinating. I, and I certainly appreciate that, that insight. What was one of those, you know, in, in, that, in that first time you shut the company down, what was one of those major lessons learned that you said, all right, I'm going to take this lesson. I'm going to etch it. I'm going to etch it into my, my DNA to not repeat this mistake again. So there are just so many. I think the first one that stood thing, out. I think the most important decision you make is joining a company or starting a company in a certain direction. And that decision obviously, you know, sets everything going forward. And I think many times do not spend enough time at that point really thinking through why am I doing this? Where am I going? Is this the right thing for me? You know, where do I go? When I shut down Intercast, I was traumatized with the whole thing. I said, okay, next role, I want something small thing, not world changing, not global, something small, whatever. I've learned my lesson. And I ended up at Waze, which is definitely the opposite of that. 
Um, but we spent months together, me and the founders, before I decided to join the company. Months and months together. Building that relationship. Scenarios. Building the relationship. But also for me, it was you know coming from that trauma that I made a decision too fast without thinking it through. I was like spending the time to make sure it was the right team, the right product, the right uh, thing that I wanted to do. By the way, right does not mean it's right for the world, right for you. Right for you. How do you, how do you balance due diligence of like looking into a company's financial future roadmap versus your gut decision? How do you, how do you balance that? Well, unfortunately, and I think most of the research has shown this, uh, we actually make our decisions the first few minutes and then we spend months trying to justify it rationally, right? We've got this kind of animal part of our instinctive views and then we've got the logical side that's grown slower fast thinking slow thinking you know there are different ways of putting this um, but this is really very important for people when they go fundraising you know the the vc will make a decision in the first few seconds first few minutes right, about whether or not they want to invest everything else is just to justify to the partners and, and this is really that gut instinct that comes to play but i think what's important about that logical side is really to challenge your gut instincts, to, uh, to understand that you've made that decision. You want to, or why do I was right. want to? No, but also you need to realize why do you want to do it? Like with Intercast, my big mistake was I went to that company because I wanted to join a company and not do something else I was involved in and not because it was the right company, right? Had I been honest with myself at that point, I would have seen that, okay, I, I, this is the wrong company for me for a lot of different reasons, but the reason, the real reason I want is to join a company. So it's so interesting too. Like when you think about your gut decision and I want to kind of go back to that too, because you said VCs make their decision in the first, you know, couple of minutes. Is it, is it, is it a matter of betting on the jockey versus the horse, like betting on the operator, analyzing the person who's going to be the captain of the ship and say, listen, if this person could do the job and I feel it, you know, I could, we could figure out the, the company and the product. I look at it more as, as a, I'm talking about VCs in the context of starting companies, but I think in, it's true in many, many, many scenarios, right? When you want to date someone, right? If you think about dating apps, like, think about Tinder, right? right? Tinder basically shows you a picture and you swipe through it, right? It's a bias, right? That, you can... It's a bias, but that picture is based on hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that we look at a person and 85% we're right about how we, we, we think that person is. Now, obviously, we're wrong 15% of the time, <laughs> many right? Times. So many times. But, uh, but the point is that we have that animalistic instinct in us. And then that rational side comes in later and begins to think, whoa, well, why are we doing this? And who is this? And is it right? And there's a balance. There are different theories about which side is more powerful. But I think in general, what you have to remember is the way you come across it with the other person. Do that, does the other person want to spend time with you? Do they like you in the traditional sense, right? And do they like the idea in the context of you, right? If you make that spark in the beginning, then you're in the position of let's explain it to the partners. And that's the due diligence process. The flip side is if they don't, they might keep, they'll keep the process going, but it's very hard to change someone's gut instinct at that moment. Once they kind of gut feel that this is wrong, it's very hard to change. Yeah, that's, that's how, and, I, and I appreciate you sharing that insight from your from your perspective of, and, and tons of experience. So I want I want to talk about ways for a moment here. And obviously, you've talked about this many, many times on lots of shows. So I don't want to go too, too deep into that. But I want to talk about the, the culture, something that people talk a lot about in the pre-Google acquisition culture, um, which has been documenting. What, what made it so special? What was that was that secret formula? So, um, you know. Ehud was the technical founder of Waze, and Amir was, was a co-founder. And Amir was an engineer, but a people person. 
And his thesis when he started Post was, it weighs, he said, I want to hire the best people I've ever worked with. And so he hired people that were much older than you expect. The average age of an engineer is about 40 at ways. Super experienced people. Most of them came from the top intelligence units in the army where they've been hacking nuclear reactors or whatever it is. Yeah, they, they, they're not looking at traffic cams, right? <laughs> they, they, they can figure that stuff out. But the point, when, when I joined the company, I, I interviewed uh, each person. And the thing that struck me is that every engineer in different ways said the same thing. They said, this is the first place where I'm not the smartest person in the room. And there are people that have always been the smartest person in the room their whole career. And that, I think, was the unique thing that Amir managed to build is really gather such a strong team of people. By the way, created problems in the future that it was very hard to integrate new people in because if you weren't on their level, like, A, you couldn't understand kind of what they built. Nobody documented anything because you know, code is the documentation. But it, there was this challenge of how do you hire people? Because as you scale, you can't keep hiring these, these people. There aren't enough of them in the world to hire. Fast, fascinating. Was was there ever a a how, how did you manage egos? All these people are top performers. Listen, we got to be real about it. There's there's egos, but how do you manage egos? So um, I would say in general, uh, we hired for attitude and for skills, and that narrowed the pool even more. Yes, we had some assholes, and and I think we managed to get rid of them relatively fast. But we did have some people that that was a problem. I'll tell you where the problem becomes when someone's so smart, many times they, they expect that from everyone. Hmm. And so they assume that like we had an amazing, our, our first, for a long time, our, our app was the same code base that we compiled for windows and, and Nokia, uh, Symbian and windows phone and, and iPhone and, and amazing engineering feat. And it allowed us to have less engineers, et cetera. But the price was that it was so complex that you needed someone who was basically a back-end real-time engineer who likes front-end UI pixels. You know, like three people in the world that fit that description, right? That could do both. And, so, yeah. and that, that created a problem hiring people for the team. So the team got stuck. And we had to, at the end, kind of rewrite a lot of things and, and bring, that, bring things more to kind of simpler technologies so you could actually hire people that could run with it. That could actually and, do it. Yeah. And, and this is the difference between like the early stage and scaling. Right? When you, the early stage really is about a small team of amazing people who are committed, et cetera. As you begin scaling, you got to be thinking about not just like, who can I hire? Right? And the who can I hire is, is I think, the most important thing. Because a lot of start, everybody wants to hire these amazing people, right? And there aren't enough of them in the world. Right. Not so, everyone's an A player, right? You're not, it's just not scalable. And it's not law of averages. Law of averages is not going to be possible. And, and as a small company, it's very hard to hire them, especially these days with the salaries have gotten totally out of control. Right. So what do you do? And a lot of people still say, I keep I want to hire this person, which you're never going to hire and they get stuck. But you've got to figure out, do I offshore? Do I outsource? Do I hide? Do I use simpler technologies? Do I split the system up to different components? So each component is simpler. Like you've got to figure out a way where I think today the number one constraint is your ability to hire the talent. And you've got to start from that constraint and go backwards. You know, boards today spend a lot of time talking about in go to market and all these different components of, of a company. But, and everybody agrees that people are the most important thing. But what that means is you have to build your company for the people you can hire versus build the company and say, I'm just going to hire these amazing people that don't That's exist. That's how it works. No, so let's, so let's, let's talk about it. Perfect timing right here. As I was telling you before I hit record, I'm a recruiter by trade. The origins of the show are about providing value to my audience as far as hiring and questions. So what, what was your approach to ascertain 
But I assume by the time most folks got to you in the interview process, their skills have been verified. You're talking to someone because they're qualified on paper to do the job. But how do you know them? How, how did you dig in to assess character and and personality to see if they'd work with the team? And and did you did you utilize any any kind of military tactics there? Any counterintelligence? <laughs> yeah. I put them in a room, put a bag over their head. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, he's not, he's not kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Joking. joking. Maybe. No. First of all, <laughs> depends I'm on the job. Very, I'm not very good at hiring. That's why I've learned statistically about myself. Like bad and decision so very, process, or did you did you just me people? And so it's very important for me to have a partner with me who's really good at hiring. So Amir was that person at Waze and, and, and Noel's that person at Post. There are people, it's an instinctive thing. Putting aside the skills, right? Evaluating skills is one thing. But even there, you evaluate the skills already, as we spoke before. You kind of make the decision when the person walks in the room. And then the skills are to validate that you assume they're going to be great. You know, at, at Google, they have this huge hiring process and they're very proud of it, whatever. But when you run a correlation of the of the is, is, of how the hiring committee rated a person, and you look at how well they did throughout their life at Google, there's no correlation. And if anything, there's negative correlation. Well, there's some people that are just really good at interviewing. Exactly. And, and by the way, what we would introverts do, and extroverts yeah. in the military when we would select someone for for the teams, they would then be followed throughout their career. And we'd look back and see, okay, what did the hiring committee think? How good was the, you know, the selection committee? Well, you have to evaluate them. Because you're evaluating, exactly. Evaluating. You have to recalibrate so, the committee decision, the decision process, see if they it, actually were successful. And what, what were the biases and, mm-hmm. and, and what, what were the blind spots also? Right? A lot of times you get this great, strong person who, who whatever, he, he projects a certain image, right? You see that in interviews. Someone walks in full of confidence, et cetera, and goes to, to code on the whiteboard. Versus someone who's an introvert who did not go to MIT exactly. and it might be an amazing uh, engineer, but is scared of standing on the whiteboard, right? There, there's so many things around that, around talent. And I think because talent is so scarce today, you have to get better. You know, Google, Google says, we don't mind. We'd rather miss a great engineer than hire a, 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 the wrong engineer. And so they miss a lot of great people, right? And you could argue if what they say is good is, is really what, what companies need. But mm. I think when, at a small company, you have no choice but to look for those diamonds in the rough because the the you know the MIT PhD graduate you know is probably going to go to Google anyway. So like, right. and you're not going to be able to compete on price. Well, that's that's the other part too, right? Like a smaller company, it's highly selective. You got to there if you're looking for the best talent, you have to assume that they're interviewing at the best possible companies out there, right? But but this is one thing that's very important. This is one thing I think that I learned the wrong way with uh, uh, the hard way with the Intercast. You have to hire the right people for the task that you're at at that moment, not the right people in general. So someone who's right for Google is not right for a startup. Now, we're having this challenge now. We're having a very hard time hiring machine learning experts, right? And it's hard for everyone, AI, you know, everything. But the problem is that most of these amazing people go to these large companies and the skill sets they get there are great for large companies, but they wouldn't be able to start something from scratch. Right. Or they may not it's, be hands-on. They may be more higher-level, you know, strategy versus execution versus startup. But you need them to be both in the dirt and in the clouds. But also, it's a different skill set. Like starting from scratch, a startup is all all about eighty twenty, right? You want to do twenty percent of the work to get eighty percent of the result and stop there. A corporation is about five nines, ninety nine point nine 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 nine, right? You're arguing Google search today. They're looking at the fraction of a percentage of conversion, right? The, because it's the scale and micro optimization. 
it's different skill sets. And this is a mistake when you hire someone because they come from these big companies for an early stage company, usually they fail. There are people that can't scale back and forth, but that's very, very unique. That is a that is a clip right there into itself. Chris, producer, clip, clip that. We're <laughs> gonna go back and do that. Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Um, I want to switch gears for a moment here, and there's a handful of quotes from articles that I'd love to for you to elaborate on. And here's the first one from your exit letter from Google, published <laughs> in February 2021. Here we go. <clears throat> Quote, I was a naive startup leader believing that I could build out ways within Google to its full potential and conquer the beast, regardless of its nature. This irrational belief is critical for a startup leader, but challenging in the corporate environment. I think this goes back to kind of what we were just talking about, right? As, as someone myself who's worked both in, I worked for American Express, I worked at very large corporations and startups, right? Do you, how do you think of the, that dichotomy, right? Do you think that there's a right path when it comes to that question? Or like, does someone, is someone better for one or another, like out of the gate? Like, are they hardwired for that? So it's funny. I, I wrote that letter when I left at Google. I did not have any idea I was going to get the, 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 the kind of, the virality, virality that it did. Yeah. I mean, everybody read it and, and everybody, people got very mad at me. People don't talk to me today because of what I wrote there, et cetera. But I think I was trying to, to express my understanding of what I did wrong. And, you know, I came into Google with the startup mentality of we're going to build within. I'm going to change the culture mm-hmm. at Google. I started this, the growth team at Google to try and bring in growth as, as a discipline. I had all kinds of ideas of how I'm going to change the beast. And I had never worked at a large company before. So I didn't understand the reality. And, and the reality is, I say, I call it the nature of the beast. Startups have their nature and corporations have their nature. And they meet somewhere in the middle, right? But overall, when you're an early stage company, it's a completely different world. You have no idea how to even evaluate decisions that are going on in corporations. Because you take your mindset and say, well, if I was there, this is what I would do. But you're not there, and the person there has a very different interest to screw the other VP or to get his CEO job once he leaves. And so that's why they're doing something, right? You as a startup, you just think about the product. The product, that's all you have. They have a million other constraints, regulation and press and and other teams and politics and like all these things. And these are skill sets. So someone who's spent 10 years at a large tech company is an expert at doing things in a large tech company. That's their skill set that they learned. And that's great. But that skill set does not translate into a startup. Now, same, same the other way. Someone's been in a startup their whole life usually doesn't translate into a corporate world for exactly that reason. You keep trying to push your product through while the organization is looking for other things. Fascinating. Spot on. Um, another one of your reflections I was reading working for Google, that it hindered or removed your ability to be transparent. Why is transparency so important in startups and why is it hindered in the large companies? So to me, transparency is everything. You know, it, it, again, we go back to the military unit. The, the, the one thing that'll get you thrown out overnight is if you're caught lying or not telling the truth, immediately it you're out. fucks That's everything up. Question, right? Yep, it just... Because, you know, you're sending, trust. 12, you're sending 12 people to the other side of the world and you have to trust that when they say they've seen something, they've seen it. 
or if they haven't, they haven't, right? And this can have, you know, international- Life like, and uh, death ramifications, political, geopolitical, exactly. yeah. It's, <laughs> but on top of that, it's so hard to lie well because you got to keep these stories in your head of what's going on. So being transparent, also on an operational level, is just the best way to do it, right? And it's the only way you can learn. When you start hiding transparency and trying to, to sugarcoat things and trying to explain things nicely so and being very polite about them, and you know, it, it ruins the ability to learn as an organization and, and as individuals. And this is the thing I remember when I, when I joined Google a few weeks in, I got this email. It doesn't matter what the product was, but the email basically said, hey, we built this product. It was amazing. We did all this amazing stuff, whatever. And so we're shutting it down. And I read this email 10 times. I couldn't understand it. And I went to other people asking them, none of us could understand what they meant, right? Now, you think if you hire the smartest people in the world, you can't treat them like idiots. They're yeah. smart. They'll read through your bullshit. And they're they'll just figure gonna, it out. They'll, they'll figure it out. So to me, transparency is super important. It's, it's very hard to do it. When you go into a corporation, you get all kinds of constraints. What you can say and how you can say and to whom you can say and all these constraints that happen, which begin filtering What's really going on? Like when you go to these all hands and these large companies and you get like a, a VP and executive talking, you know, the people that actually work on the project usually have no idea what they're talking about. It's like, we have all these problems. What are they saying? It's so wonderful. And like, and, and being transparent is a, is a superpower. It gives you that extra edge as a company to really move faster, better, stronger, et cetera. How did, how did, that time at Google affect you in, internally? Did it did it give you anxiety? Did it give you agita? Like you're coming from this startup small team. So how, how did how how old were you at the time? I ask. Quick quick timestamp there. I'm trying to get a, a level set. Oh, that's a good question. 2013. Well, it was 10 years ago. So I was I was 42. Okay, so roughly the same age as, as me right now. I'm 44. So I'm thinking about myself right now, getting thrown into something. We, we have you, you. The Waze team is this efficient, built in, this insane wonderful product out there you get absorbed by google acquired by google and now you're in this monster conglomerate but but as a leader how, how, did, how did that feel being in the belly of the beast so uh, i have to give credit to google they gave us complete autonomy to continue whatever we still ran an aws for years like we, we were we really got a, yeah, they didn't even a, pull a, that from you we got almost anything uh, that we wanted from them. they were great and that goes back to the nature of the beast right there's things that we just we couldn't understand that for them were obvious, right? You should spend all this time on your performance review writing these documents. For, like that's what everybody does. You know, you spend during performance review code check-ins drop by thirty percent because everyone's working on this. Yeah, process paralysis never, right there. Jeez, you can never imagine that at a startup, right? So all these things created friction. Now I'm, as you can imagine, a very outspoken person, and transparency still drives me. So I became a very outspoken person against the culture at Google, etc. I found a lot of people, especially the old. People that started the original, people that actually founded Google, right? The original Googlers, it completely connected with what I'm saying. But the corporate people saw it as an attack on them. Mm, and they took it personal. They took it personally. and, and but, but also, it's like that's their skill to, to work in a corporation, not to build products, right? To take a product and improve it half a percent. They were managers. They were managers. They were people, people, people process managers. So, so let's, let's continue with the journey here. You, you leave Google, and I love this. If you look at Gnome's LinkedIn uh, work experience, February 2021, it says to, 20, to May 2022, quote, the position, thinking about what's next, sitting at home with the huge smiley face <laughs> icon next to it. How, how, did, how, did, how did you spend that time? Sitting at home? So, <laughs> As I was sitting at home, you know, I tried to retire and, and that doesn't, didn't work well for me. 
Why? You have to be active? Like, you can't just sit there? Like, what are you going to do with retirement? You a golfer? Uh, I, I, you collect I, stamps? That's <laughs> exactly. I, I have no... My hobbies are work. I love working. Building. I love building things. I love, you know, the figuring out solutions to problems with limited resources. Everything that has to do with startup life. But I felt that I have to retire. So I, I tried developing hobbies and I failed miserably. And, but the thing was, there was something that was bothering me for a long time. And this really was a... a disinformation, misinformation, everything that's going around on social media, news and all that. And so I started building some products um, together with Noel, my co-founder. We built a, a, this micropayment network. And our thesis was, you know, today, every, every time you go to a new site, they want you to subscribe. But you're not going to subscribe to everyone. And they convert a very small, maybe under 2% of the users actually convert to subscribe. Let's give an option to buy the article for 10 cents, 15 my, cents, micro whatever. Micro-purchase. I just want that one article. I just want it. I just want to read it. I don't want to buy your site. So we spent a long time with that speaking to publishers, saying like a year and a half, uh, trying to convince them. And we couldn't convince anyone to do a test with us. We convinced Dan Rather's team to let us uh, run a test on their Substack, which is a little different, but we got consumer feedback that people get it. (laughs) So everything worked, except the publishers wouldn't come along. At a certain point, we decided to to stop because we just couldn't get anyone to come along. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, um, when we saw kind of what was going to go, what was happening with Twitter, et cetera, I believe we're at the beginning of us, of kind of the second generation of social. The first generation was companies started on PCs, you know, mm-hmm. the, the old uh, internet, and we're seeing something new. And I think the best example is TikTok, right? TikTok is not YouTube, it's something else, but it's, it, it it's video centric. Yes. It, it, it took some of the functionality of, of uh, uh, YouTube, the short clips, et cetera, and it, it built, it disambiguated it from the rest of YouTube and built an app <coughs> focused just on that. And I believe this is what's going to happen going forward. We're not going to have generalists, we're going to have specialists. Hmm. And so what we want to do uh, at Post is to basically extract the news. <coughs> and what I mean by that is I get my news from social. The only reason I use Twitter was to get news. I'd follow people, I'd follow publications. They would kind of filter the stuff to me. I like reading it in the feed. But every time I want to read something, I jump to a website with a million com- ads and, and it's email capture forms and all to get at the end to a paywall, right? That's terrible. And, and I want to read it in my feed. And when you look out, most uh, people, the apps, the younger you get, the higher the percentage, see their the, the social as their news platform. And so I believe that social is the news platform. And so we built Post to be a, a, a social platform focused on news. So you can read it. We have about 200 publishers on the platform, about 40 of them ingest their content directly into the platform. Everything opens in your feed. Some are free. Some are for, you pay for a few cents. Every user has a, a micropayment wallet. You can I love the people, fractional. Consider. Yeah. The, 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 I, the, the concept itself, right? The, the concept of a fractional purchase. I don't want to spend $16 a month. I just want that one article. I mean, New York Times pisses me off the most of that because I do not subscribe to the Times and my friends send me articles and all of a sudden there's a freaking paywall. I'm like, bro, give me your pass. Like, Send it to me. And then I go on Reddit and I get it for free, right? Like it's like, exactly. I, 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 have a, I have the worker. I just did this yesterday with an article, right? The ability to, to pick and choose what elements just because it's, it's shared on a, on a platform. That's where I want to get it from. I want to, I will purchase it from you. I believe in that. And, and also you look at these user experiences, right? You go to a, a, the average news site and the, the ad load is so quick. Every paragraph, there's an ad and it's an auto playing video ad, right? And, and. This is the problem in, in, in large organizations where there's no founder anymore and everything's kind of inertia. You know, it's like, well, one more ad. Does it help? Well, you know, incrementally, mm-hmm. yeah, it does. So kind of this logic leads to the point. Suddenly you have 50 ads on the paper, uh, on the page because no one 
cares what the user experience is. Everyone's focused on whatever on the financial goals. And, and, it, and it's a vicious cycle, right? So people stop going to these sites and you stop going. So you start reading all the craziness on the social me- media and the toxicity. That's what you read as news suddenly because it's free. You know, the, the truth is paywalled and lies are free is kind of the state that we're in. And, and so this is really the, the goal of Post, to be a place for kind of people, regular people, not culture warriors, mm-hmm. don't want to be called a communist or a fascist every day, Extreme. that want to get their news and share and like and comment and do everything there. We're heavily moderated. You know, we believe that, that you know, if you want to be a, a misogynist or a homophobe or a racist, anti-Semitic, there are enough platforms for you. Like, yeah. Multiple platforms will love that. We know where to go. For us, we'll throw you off the platform. We don't want you on the platform. And that's really, I think, one of the core differences so, between us and other platforms. So, so let's dig into that for a minute. And one thing I personally appreciate that you've said about your plans for Post News is this quote from a press release during the launch. It reads, I'm working hard to invite conser- conservative voices as well. We do not want to be the liberal Twitter. Please be respectful of opinions you disagree with. Our worth as citizens of a democracy is measured by how we treat people we disagree with, not the opinions we share. Massive. Let's make sure all people are welcome, even if we disagree with their opinions. Let's talk about civil discourse, right? Let's talk about that idea of being able to, hey, I may disagree with everything that you believe in, but I'm still going to treat you with respect. I'm still going to agree that you're entitled to your opinion, even though I disagree with it. And we could agree to disagree and discuss respectfully. So uh, I think this is an area that obviously we have not made enough progress. Our platform oh, hell no. is very, very liberal. <laughs> I mean, extremely liberal. The most conservative person is probably George Conway on our platform, right? To put it in perspective, he's a conservative, but he's what we call old school conservative when the Republican Party was something else, right? Um, we have rules on the platform and we enforce them. So if you come and you attack a person directly, okay, we'll throw you off the platform. If you attack their idea, that's fine. If you want to attack their idea, and, and no matter how stupid the idea is, that, that's all fine. But the fact that it's a woman or a man or, or a gay person, whatever, that is off limits to attack. And, and these are the I, kind of, of, of rules that we have. Now, it's a problem. There's a large chunk of people who believe that uh, you know their race is superior and they've got to do whatever. Well, those ideas are not going to uh, live on post. I don't agree with this idea that free speech means anything goes. Free speech is freedom from the government. You know, the funny thing is... You know, yeah, let's let's, let's get into that a little bit, right? It's uh-huh. been diluted. The same thing with the Second Amendment, right? With gun rights. Oh, exactly. It's been diluted since it was originally created. Free speech isn't... You could say and do whatever the hell you want at any given time to anybody. That is not free speech if it's no, defamation so, or hurting somebody. I mean, if you think about the First Amendment, at the end of the day, it's to protect you from the government, right? Kings used to not allow people to say, if you said something bad about the king, you had your head chopped off, right? Yeah. That was the world that America was created in. Kind of right? worked. From an enforcement perspective, it kind of worked. Yeah. Hey, mate, we're probably going back to there. So let's, yeah. let's not yeah. miss it, right? No, but, but the point the point is it's protected from the government. And that I agree a hundred percent. And that means a few things. It means we will never be an app in Russia. We won't. Because the government fine. there has laws. So we have to take the pain. If you're not willing to take the pain from a decision, then you don't really believe in it, right? And so if you're not see platforms, willing to take the pain from a decision. I, I love that. Mm, that that I would mean, I would rather the companies stop saying they support gay rights and then fund politicians who are trying to make gay right, gays illegal, right? I would much rather they, that they just don't say that, right? Because they don't. Now, if you do say that, that means you're not – you shouldn't be sending the money to that politician and you might get – issue. you've got to take pain, right? Pain means you believe in something. And so for us, I think something I found very disappointing was that Twitter censored a, a content on the Turkish election. They basically bowed to the Turkish government. Now, 
It's terrible on every level, on a theoretical level, but also the amount of revenue coming out of Turkey, I'm sure, is small. Even if you want to be cynical, right, and say, oh, well, well, we have to do it because of revenue, I'm sure it's not there, right? But these are the kinds of decisions that we, as Americans, who believe in civil rights and inequality and democracy, we shouldn't be afraid to say that we believe our, our way of government is better than the authoritarian regimes. Like, it is. We've done things that no other country has done, right? Yeah. We shouldn't be afraid of that. But that means that when when a government comes and says, we want to censor you, you have to say no. And the price is maybe, yeah, you'll be blocked in Turkey during the elections. Okay, pay the price, but believe in something. Stand for something. Stand for something. Absolutely. So one of the features of – and thank you for that perspective. That, that resonates deeply. Thank you. One of the features of posts that I think is really great for independent creators is this concept of, of tipping. Do you think that there needs to be some kind of shift in – consumer behavior to make this more commonplace. And I want to pause for one moment here. I'm not talking about tipping, which is annoying everybody right now when you go to make a standard purchase at a store and that tipping <laughs> thing comes up because that is just ridiculous. Like I'm the delivery guy. I'm picking up my own food. You're not getting tipped. But the concept so, of tipping here, let's let's break yeah. it down. So I had to so, rant a little and, bit there. So first of all, on post, as I said, every every user has a wallet and anyone can tip anyone. So a web two no, wallet or a web three crypto wallet? No crypto. Okay. I'm not a believer in crypto at all. Happy to have that discussion. If you want, if you have three hours spare, Ooh, but, that's, uh, that'll be for our part two. We'll do that one in the fall. <laughs> okay. That we can definitely do. I'm a very <laughs> anti-crypto person. Why? And the high level, why? High level. Do, do you not believe in decentralized so, finance? No. And more than that, if you look at the people who support crypto, it comes from overall people that come from finance. And the people that are against crypto, it's people that come from cons consumer apps. And that's the difference. Consumers don't give a shit what your infrastructure is. They don't care what database you use. They don't care how the All sausage they, is made. They don't care. But losing my money when I lose my password, yes, that's a problem for consumers, right? Uh, allowing a, 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 you know, a money laundering and, and, and all this stuff is a problem. That's like at the highest level. You want to go down everything the crypto, well, crypto says it is, it isn't. Well, well, just one point I want to get your, your take on. Let's take ourselves well, out of being Americans and being able to generally have access to all of our money. You look up north, look what happened uh, a couple of years ago, pandemic with the truckers and the, and the Canadian banks like freezing that. We're looking at Africa where it's impossible for folks to get money to buy food and they're paying exorbitant fees to Western Union. The concept of decentralized finance and be able to hold your own wallet and be able to, like that's innovation future for mankind, right? How do you balance well, it? So the fact that I, I went here, I'm going to, I opened yeah, the door. No, no, that's I, fine. You, I you opened, opened the, door. the door. You opened the door. I, I, my shot, I opened the door. I'm curious. The, the fact that in Africa, in a country, they can't move money around, you know, that's a problem. That problem does not mean you have to be decentralized, right? That's a governance problem. And the same company countries actually control the internet. And if they wanted to, they could block all, all this stuff. Overnight. Now you have no crypto. <laughs> right. You go, no, nothing. Right. It, Look, what we see happening everywhere, right? When you're small and you're cool and whatever, everybody can play the game. But when you want real people to put their money and their trust in you, they want some regulation, right? What happens when my money's gone? The best example, Silicon Valley Bank went bankrupt, right? Basically, all of our money and every other startup in the world's money was there. We got bailed out. They didn't. But we got bailed out by the Fed, right? And, and, and the Fed forced. And that should be. The Fed should protect us, not the investors. That's great. And crypto, you know, a bunch of them went public, went bankrupt. Who's protecting the investors? No one. You should have right? a look. So then you start adding regulations. You start adding all these levels of complexity and you end up with a system very similar to the current banking you, system. You go back to where you were. Yeah, fascinating. All right, let's bring this back on track to tipping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get back to tipping. So, I mean, independent um, creators. I mean, but that's that's yeah. actually like, you know, one, 
one of the nice things I see about, you know, I don't want to so go into the NFT side, but like the ability for creators to monetize. So we're very focused on creators. I, I think when we talk about news, we talk about news in the wide sense. It's not just the traditional sports, politics, business right. categories, and it's not just publishers. It's also publishers, but it's also newsletter writers, et cetera. Like you can ingest your newsletter directly into post, have it posted automatically and receive tips from people reading it, right? Which So they're all, all this stuff. But when it comes to tipping, the problem is friction. Lots of sites have put on this button that you can go to Venmo and, you know, you can do mm-hmm. no one. Very few people are going to do that, right? Not, you're not going to do it for a few reasons. One, you're actually going to go to Venmo and put your number in and wire, blah, 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 blah. Second thing is you're going to have to do it for a large amount of money. It costs 40 cents a transaction to use a credit card. You can't send someone 25 cents, right? It's just going to lose money. They're going to lose money, right? Yeah, Everyone's going to lose money. Not a good process. deal. And so for us, it, all it is is you click on the tip, you click on the 25 cents, and that's it, right? Because it's micropayments, right? We can do these small transactions. Now imagine Micro when you hit scale, you know, and you're a creator and you write something that everybody likes. So first of all, they don't have to subscribe to your publication. And most creators, newsletters, have a fraction of their audience to subscribe. And they're not monetizing the mass of the audience that read their free content. People love to tip. We've seen that. We're seeing it on the platform everywhere. People are tipping publishers, like premium publishers, CNN, you know, USA Today, et cetera, are getting tips on the platform. That's crazy. People, you know, and again, when it's a small amount of money and the friction is gone, you know, people love doing this. Ask me to take out my credit card and open my Venmo account or whatever. Much work. You know, for 25 cents, you know, I have other things to do. So, so as we as we head down the home stretch here, one thing I love uh, doing the research here, listening to you speak on podcasts or blog and writing blog posts is how how you distill things down to a purpose or a conclusion. And when I think about your purpose overall, I think about creating quality products and crafting a following a, a worthwhile vision. Do you consider yourself to be product led or vision led? First of all, I think product is vision. There's no difference between them. So there are two types of product managers, ah, the multiple types. So obviously, to me, there are two kind of big archetypes of product managers. One of them will come in to a, to a product review and show you a list of features. Okay. And this feature is beautiful. This feature is... Another one will come in and show you a list of problems they want to solve, of where they want the product to be. What's the vision of the product? When you are, If you have clarity on what you're trying to solve... It doesn't matter which feature you build to solve it. You can try this feature, that feature, whatever, right? If you're focused on the feature, you're wedded to the feature, you're not wedded to the problem. And that's a huge one. When you think about what is the vision of a company, right? It's overall, we want to solve a problem Problem. somewhere. And that gets broken down to smaller components for different phases, right? But I get very frustrated when a product manager comes and says, here's my list of features. And this is something that I see in a lot of the big companies, right? They have a list of features because another company is doing it. Why are you doing this? Because Facebook's doing that, you know, et cetera. Who are you? What are you trying to achieve? What is the step that you're in right now? You know, they're trying to so break it up. And now once you've defined that, okay, the feature, you can do it this way and that way. And we can argue about it, whatever. But the question is, does it solve the problem? What are the biggest problems with features? How do you measure them right afterwards? So did it solve the problem? Did it move the KPI? But what's moving the KPI? What does that do? Right? So it all goes back to vision. We have clarity on the vision. A lot of things become much simpler. Prioritization becomes simpler. Deciding what's a good or bad thing to try and solve. What's important? What's not important? All this has clarity if you, if you know where you're going. If you, you don't know where you're going, where you're going you know, you're going to go all over the place. Right? And, so have, and that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's important. I mean, to, to know, to know where, to know where you're going and, and we'll get to know where you're going in a moment here, but I'm just curiosity. Who, who are some of your, your favorite founders out there, the builders out there? What, what are you seeing? What's, what's piquing your interest? So it's funny. Um, if you would ask me this question two years ago, right? 
I asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say, I want to be Elon Musk. Right. I, I think he was Kid with the most, the most toys. <laughs> no, the most amazing entrepreneur who's yeah. done the most things. If you look what happened the last two years, you realize the quality of the person isn't there. Right. It's the quality. And I'm not talking about why things happen, but you look at people once they, they are successful, what, how they act, how they treat people, right? How do you see the real nature of the person? Like one of the things I always do. So money reveals do, character. Money and success reveals true there, character. There are two, two things reveal character. When it's very, very hard. Right. And when you make a lot of money. Then you see the real person. When I interviewed a, at Google, I, I had a PA at Google. And she, she's amazing. <laughs> Nicole. And I wish she was with me now, but we're too small. But uh, what she would, she would give me notes on what it was like to schedule the interview with the person. But the and process. You see how, the process. No, no, no. no the collaboration. The, the communication. How the person treated her in scheduling. And it says so much, right, about how a person treats the receptionist at the entrance, how they treat, you know, whatever, the people that are, that they have nothing to offer them, right? Amen. And then you see the real character of the person. Real people treat good, I mean, good people treat everyone well. doesn't matter if you're the waiter or if you're the owner of the restaurant or if you, shitty people, always, it's all transactional. What can I get from the person? Oh, I don't need anything, so I'm going to treat them like shit. And, and and that I think is the best asshole indicator when you're hiring. Oh, it's it's so true. Like I, and it's just by by nature of of who I am. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything like that. But I always, when I when I when I work, for example, booking you on the show. How how do I work with the PR team? How do I work with the 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 admins and the assistants? Right. Like to, these are people that are a they're people treat people well, and b these are people that are helping you to achieve something. Don't be a jerk. That's exactly it. It's and not hard. Thing, when people make a lot of money, right? You see the people that make the money. They dump their wife. They get the the the, the young one. They start. You know, it's like I have nothing against money. I'm not one of these anti billionaires, whatever. But I think it reveals kind of your true character. And you know, you you can see also what people spend their time on. What's important to them? You know, am I building a a phallic symbol that's going to fly to space or am I actually helping people with malaria? Right. These are different right. types of decisions. What I want to do with my life. Right. It's a space. It's a space. So, so who is standing out to you these days? There was a not household it's hard name. To tell. I actually think that Silicon Valley has a problem right now of good, um, uh, good leaders that are publicly facing. It's a good example for younger uh, entrepreneurs who are starting out. A lot of the Silicon Valley crowd, have gone into this world of, um, how should I put it? I was beaten up as a kid because I was strange. I was a, a little bit autistic. I was on the spectrum. I was different, whatever. Mm. So they beat me up. Now that I'm on top, I'm going to beat everyone else up. Instead of that. I'm going to empathize, I know what it's like to be beaten up. And so I'm going to fight the bullies. It's I want to be the bully. A and I find this terrible. I, I think that you know, there used to be something about tech that was very, uh, you know, there were no hierarchies and people treat each other well. And it was relatively small teams, whatever. And that's become corporations. You look at, at the people leading the top tech companies, they they could be leading any other corporation in the world. They're not different in that sense. No. And I, I see that too a lot. And and, and I, I've been doing a lot of work in the Web3 space over the last couple of years. And I see like this kind of new version of a cool kids club of the kids that you just called it out, the kids that were bullied and picked on. And now they think they're, they're cool and they could now, you know, put their foot on other people's necks. I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to be a part exactly. of that. I, I don't, I don't need to be a part. So, so let's, but, let's, but, let's, but, but, but just, just on that point, I think is someone that I, I do want to call out is Satya uh, from Microsoft. 
Um, and I, I actually haven't met him, but I think what he did in Microsoft is amazing. And that kind of turnaround of a company at this scale, and That's all nice. it is about vision, right? Understanding who you are, right? And Balmer was something else. But I think what Satya has done is going to go down in history as one of the most amazing leaders, like le pure leadership, because there was nothing new to invent there. There was just decisions. We're going to put an office on the iPhone. We're not going to build a phone. We're not going to build an operating system. We are going to be enterprise focused. We're going to be cloud focused, right? A few small decisions with focus and, and with leadership created one of the wealthiest companies in the world. And you, don't forget, Microsoft was stuck for it had 10 years where it was stuck. And, you know, what? Microsoft used to be the joke that, that nobody wanted to work with it with, uh, from an engineering perspective. Everybody would, you know, today Microsoft is, well, is, I think, one of the best run companies and, and has one of the greatest leadership. And I don't believe I'm saying that because I used to hate Microsoft. You're but a it really is. I really am. And I think Satya did an amazing, so amazing job, pure leadership. Absolutely. So let's, let's bring it home here. And, and legacy is one of those kind of buzzwords. I mean, it's not a buzzword, but like, it, it, it's a tough question. So when, when, when your day comes to, to leave this earth, how do you want to be remembered? Frankly, I don't care how I'm remembered. Yeah. Cause you won't, you won't hear about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be dead. Like, what does it matter? I don't, everyone has these ideas that you're going to live on. I don't believe in any of that crap. It's over right at that point. But the question is, what am I doing? The time that I am here, what am I doing and how do I feel about what I'm doing? And this is like, I have a problem with, with amazing engineers who go to work, for example, for Facebook. They know they're a part of the problem. They're destroying our society, whatever. But they get paid 30% more than Google. And so I'm going to go there. Like, take responsibility. And I think everyone in an, in, in an organization is responsible for what that organization does. And obviously, there are extremes. And not if it's black and white, whatever it is. But overall, right. I think we've gotten to a world where people have become so mercenary in, in their decisions of where to go work uh, that I find that a, a terrible thing. Wow. I, I agree. I, I agree with that. Right. It's much more self-centered versus there's a there's a there's a delicate balance there. So let's let, let's bring it home here. And my last two questions, I ask every guest on the show because it frames up the masterclass. Again, it, it brings it all together here. And what no, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on daily? It could be a mantra, it could be something when you wake up in the morning, something that sets your your tone and attitude and, and drive for the day. So I think I think. One of, one of the things that I take very seriously is commitments I make. If I say I'm going to do something, I got to do it. And if I'm not going to do it, I got to say I'm not going to do it. I think one of the biggest problems is people saying they're going to do something or saying that their company is going to do something, whatever it is, and not really standing up behind that. And I used to be, going back 200 years, your word meant something. Your reputation, your name, your word. You could handshake with someone. That was enough. Today, people feel like they can fuck anyone over and it's fine. Like, you know, worst case, I'll apologize. You know, and, and so that that kind of a, a commitment to take things that you commit to seriously, and at the same time, if you're not going to do it to say you're not going to do it, I think that that I, I would say that that's the thing. Absolutely tremendous. I couldn't agree more. And last but not least, you back you look back on your life and you look at those tough times, those really hard times where you had to pull yourself up from being on the bottom and harness that inner tenacity to pull you forward. And the same breath, you sit here, gratitude for the work that you've done, for the companies that you've built, for the people that you employed, for your family and everything that you value. Noam Barton, what is your compass? What is your lighthouse? What keeps you focused? What is your North Star in life? That's because it sound, sound funny, but um, 
you know, whenever you make a decision, what would it look like on the front page of the New York Times? Right. And, and what I mean by that is every decision you make has consequences. And, and you know, usually when you're making a decision, you have a pretty good idea what the consequences are. And then, then that's where you're basically tested, right? Are you taking the easy way out? Are you taking this way out because you're getting paid more? Are you doing the right thing for the company or for yourself? If your bonus is tied to this, but you know that it's going to destroy the company going forward, but this year I'm going to get my bonus, like, is that why you're doing it? And, and to me, being able to, to kind of look your, your decisions in the, in the eye and understand the consequences of what it is, I think is, it, to me, is the North Star. I don't want to ever be in a situation where, it, where I can say that I have made a decision that was self-centered, it was wrong. It was illegal. It was all these millions of things that you know that, that could happen, um, and I think if we all just took our decisions a little more seriously, thought about the bigger picture and less about ourselves, the the us versus the me, right, is kind of the, the big difference. And so for me, the team, the decision you make, if you make decisions that you don't want your team to know because you're embarrassed by it, they're the wrong decisions. Fantastic. It's been a tremendous, tremendous episode, and we could have spent hours going down multiple rabbit holes here and the pros and, and we cons. we still have to do the Web3. We have to do the Web3 one. Oh, <laughs> the, well, I'm going to convert you. <laughs> well, it, it, it's an interesting one, but I, I want to thank you so much. I'm uh, Noam. Uh, everyone, check out uh, Post Community at post.news or download the app. Check it out. Where else could folks connect with you? Where could they, could they learn more? On Post, on LinkedIn. Follow these days. Follow along, folks. This has been a tremendous conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and your generosity of sharing your wisdom with everyone out there. Folks, if this show resonated with you, sharing means caring. Leave a review rating. It goes a long way. You can find out more on social media. Follow us, you know, thepodcast.com. We appreciate you. Thank you, Noam, so much for joining us. And to everyone listening much. out there, remember, be good to yourself, be better to others, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>